You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him to said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. I can already tell the youth up front, that's going to be fun challenge this morning. <laughs> Keep it coming, I can take it. Okay, so today is the first day of Advent. Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival. And this is our annual reminder that there is something that is coming that you and I need to get ready for. In our world that is distracting, overwhelming, constantly promoting instant gratification, what we are doing is we pause and we lean into patience, and we lean into hope, acknowledging that the best is yet to come, that we are actively holding out for the better thing. There's a line from the old Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, that I love. It says, let every heart prepare him room. That's what we're about. This isn't about getting more stuff, guys. This isn't about cramming more stuff into our lives, more stuff into our already busy schedules. This is about creating space in anticipation and preparation for God's abundance that is found in Jesus alone. And every year, Advent is the invitation to release our grip on all the things that we've been clinging to and to turn our attention from all of the things that we have been enamored by in order to hold fast to our confession, to hold fast to our one and only hope that is found in Jesus Christ, who came in humility and meekness to save us and who will return in glory and power to make all things new again. And so through the book of Hebrews, the author has been showing us that Jesus fulfills this threefold role. He's the greater prophet who speaks on behalf of God. He's the greater priest who ministers on behalf of humanity. And he is the greater king. And today we begin our Advent series looking at this portion of scripture 
in Hebrews 4 that focuses particularly on the priestly role of Jesus, that he is the greater high priest. If you're taking notes, there are two notes or two points today, making it easy on you. And it is that Jesus is the exalted and empathetic priest. So let's begin first with the exalted priest, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done, the fact that he has passed through the heavens, therefore let us hold fast our confession. I remember as a kid, whenever we'd have helium balloons, we would let them go, helium-filled balloons. We'd let them go, and we would stand there and watch them as they just got smaller and smaller and smaller. And then if you were with your siblings or with friends, you would say, I can still see it. And everyone couldn't really still see it, right? But I can still see it. I can still see it. And your, your mind would play tricks on you. I think that little dot is that balloon until finally you realized as it got smaller and smaller, it was gone. It was just out of sight. And I think a lot of our ideas about Jesus ascending after his death and resurrection, he, he ascended to the right hand of God. A lot of our ideas about Jesus ascending are spatial, that we're down here and he went up there. In fact, a lot of art depicts this sort of thought. Jesus sort of goes up there. Jesus ascending, I like that one so much. Like That's the one I call, Jesus forgot to bring his feet with him. <laughs> so many different ideas and depictions of Jesus Ascending In the early 60s, there was the race to get to space. And the first astronaut to make it to space named Yuri Gagarin said, I went to space and I didn't see God there. I went. He wasn't there. And so this is the idea that we get when we read that Jesus passed through the heavens, that he's no longer here. He's up there somewhere beyond the moon. We even refer to him as the guy, the big guy upstairs. Somewhere in space. That's where heaven is. But this is not a spatial description as much as it's a spiritual description. Jesus passing through the heavens isn't about him jetting off through the stratosphere. It's about Jesus entering beyond the veil. In fact, it's to be understood that Jesus in his ascension is being reunited with the presence of God in the heavenly realm. And we know this because this theme of high priest helps us to understand what is happening here. In the Old Testament, the role of the priest was the priest interceded for the people. They served in the tabernacle, later in the temple in Jerusalem, as representatives. The priests were mediators. They were ministers who mediated the presence of a holy God and us, sinful humanity. They stood in the gap. They were the go-between. They were the buffer, so to speak. In fact, we're told in chapter 5, verse 1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So that was their role. They stood between. They mediated the presence and so the priest was called upon to go into the place, into the realm, in the tabernacle, and again later 
in the temple that the people could not go beyond the veil into what was called the most holy place or the holy of holies where the presence of God resided on the mercy seat of the ark. In fact, some Jewish traditions, you're not going to find this in the Bible, but some Jewish traditions say that Hebrew priests would even enter into the Holy of Holies with a rope tied around their waist just in case. Well, just in case what? Well, as one Jewish writer said, according to the account of our rabbis, the high priest wore a rope around his waist as he made his way absolutely alone into the Holy of Holies. In the event that the high priest said or did something wrong, it was generally believed that he would be struck dead for his offense. Yes, right then and there. And as only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, the rope enabled his assistants to safely pull the corpse of the high priest out of the inner sanctum in the event of, quote, a mishap. So once a year, on what is known as the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. This is where the priest would venture into this place, the inner sanctum. And just for a few moments, with I imagine a lot of trepidation and I want to get up out of here as soon as possible. And there he would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people and then depart. And then the next year he would go in and get out as quickly as possible. And then the next year and the next. But Hebrews shows us that in Jesus we have someone better than those priests. Because he is the great high priest who has now passed through the heavens. Meaning he has passed through the veil, the separation between God and man into the throne room of heaven Itself. So Jesus crossed through the divide between heaven and earth. He ascended into the true holy of holies that the tabernacle only represented. And now Jesus, who shares in our flesh and blood, has gone where no human has gone before. Where no human had access to. In the Batman movie, The Dark Knight Rises, Bruce is in prison. This prison is described as the worst hell on earth, a pit where men are thrown to suffer and die. So the prison is underground, and the only way to escape is to climb up out of it. And the light shines down into this prison pit every day, haunting the men with hope of a life beyond. But in order to make the climb out, there's this vast chasm that they must jump across. A gap that has claimed the lives of many men before. And so Bruce is there in the depths. He's talking to another prisoner there. And they're talking about fear. And Bruce essentially says, I don't fear death. He said, but what I do fear is being stuck down here while my city burns with no one to help them. And one of the old men in his deep, thick accent says, then make the climb. Make the climb. And he urges him to climb without the rope, with no way of turning back, no plan B, all or nothing. To save his people, he must accomplish the impossible. He must do 
what the other men below cannot do. And as he's climbing and as the Hans Zimmer score is building and the chance, ha, 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 he climbs and he does the impossible. He makes the leap and he climbs up out into the upper world again. The Apostle Paul would describe the ministry of Jesus like this in Ephesians chapter 4. What does he ascended, quote, mean except that he also first descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who then ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Jesus, our great faithful high priest, came and first descended into the depths of our humanity. This is at the heart of the Christian message. This is at the heart of the Christmas message that the Son of God took on flesh and he dwelt among us, not aloof, not in some high castle, but in the depths of our despair. And he did what we could not do. He remained sinless, the only perfect human, the only one who could live perfectly in accordance to the will of the Father. And as, as our great high priest, he offered sacrifice, a sacrifice for our sins, but not with the blood of animals over and over and over again, but with the once and for all sacrifice of himself. Hebrews would tell us that this Jesus is not just the priest who goes into the inner sanctum to make sacrifice, but he is also the lamb that was slain for our sins. He is the gift that has been offered to God on behalf of us all. And after offering his blameless life on the cross, which, by the way, was the death that we all deserve because of our rebellion towards God. After he offered his blameless life on the cross, the gospel tells us that on the third day he rose from the grave and he ascended into heaven beyond the veil where he is now making intercession for his people. Where is Jesus? He's beyond the veil. He's gone where no man can go. And he's there making intercession for us. In fact, Jesus is described here in chapter 5, verse 6, as a priest forever. Not just another priest in the lineages of priests that do their thing and then die, but he's our forever priest, which means he's our forever advocate which means he'll never stop loving us. He'll never stop caring for us. He'll never stop praying for us. He'll never stop ministering to our needs. There are no limits. There are no expiration dates on the mercy and the grace that this priest offers us. Friend, you are forever needy. You are. But Jesus is forever there for you. Secondly and finally, Jesus is the empathetic priest. 
We're told in Hebrews all these amazing things about Jesus, that he is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of God's nature, that he is greater than all of the heavenly hosts combined. He is the greater Moses. He is greater than the Torah, and he's greater than the law, and he's greater than Joshua. He is greater than them all. But the question is this, how does this great one relate to me? Okay, that's fine. He is so great. He is so exalted. He is so other, but how does he relate to the rest of us fallen people? How does he relate to us who live the Monday through Friday and the normal life, what it means to be a normal person? How can he relate to us? And this is the question that the author of Hebrews anticipates when he says in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness but one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are yet without sin. So in this Jesus, we have both triumph and tenderness. We have both greatness, and as we'll see later in this passage, gentleness. In this Jesus, we see sovereignty, and yet sympathy. There's a song that our kids have been singing since the beginning of reality. It's a praise song in the kids' ministry. My God is so great. So you don't, you're, not, you're not doing it right unless you like stomp your feet too. My God is so great, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are his, the rivers are his, the skies are his handiwork too. You know this one, Levi. My God is so great, I need a stomp, great, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. It sounds like there are some adults in here that need to be serving in the kids' ministry. <laughs> You're like, I've never heard it, I wonder why. <laughs> my God is so great, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. So that is a rhetorical way of saying that he can do anything, right? When we think of the nothings that he cannot do, when we consider his greatness, we think in terms of his might, his strength, his bigness. He raises the mountains. Like Exodus, he parts the seas, he calms the storms. Nothing can stop this Jesus. But here in Hebrews, it broadens our understanding of the nothings that he cannot do so that we can grasp the vastness of his care, the vastness of his compassion, the vastness of his sympathy. The author uses the same sort of rhetorical device here with double negatives. He says, we do not, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, which means he can't not care. I, I need you to hear this. Jesus can't not care. You don't know my situation. He can't not. You don't know what I've gone through. He can't not care. Why well, I'm struggling to believe. He still can't not care. 
which is a way of saying that Jesus is unlimited, unhindered, never-ending in his empathy and love toward us, toward a people that never stop needing it. H.B. Charles said that God always has more compassion than your mistake, always has more grace than your sin. He always has more mercy than your mess. Your pain, your anger, your disappointment with God, it may be great, and I'm sure that they are, but the love and the compassion that Jesus has for you is always going to be greater. You can't outsuffer his sympathy. You can't outdespair his devotion for you. You can't outrun his regard for your life. Why? Because he's one with us. He's inextricably bound now with our humanity. There's no separating us. As Dane Ortland put it, he knows what it is to be thirsty and hungry, despised and rejected, scorned, shamed, embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused, suffocated, tormented, and killed. We can never again say, no one knows. No one understands me. No one knows what it's like to live my life. Stop. Because it's simply not true. Years ago, I was listening to a podcast on this trippy topic of entanglement. And I listened to this interview from a woman, uh, with a woman named Amanda, who physically feels what she sees other people. There are a lot of Amandas in the room. It's none of you. Maybe. So she physically feels what she sees other people experiencing. So when someone else in the room gets touched, she feels the touch. When someone else gets hurt, she feels the hurt. So she was sharing the story of being in the grocery store. And there's this young boy in the shopping cart with his mother. He's playing around doing, you know, what you're not supposed to do. And he gets kind of wobbly and falls out. And before she can get there to reach him, to help him, she finds herself on the ground with a debilitating headache because what she's just witnessed in the boy. So the people doing this interview are like, mm. they bring in a neuroscientist to try to figure out what the heck is going on. And they put her through a series of studies. And what they did was they tracked the signals of her brain and found that when someone in the room was touched, now, I'm sure there's a far more scientific way to describe this, so forgive me. But when someone else in the room was being touched, her touch center in her brain was activated and went wild. It was as if she was partially experiencing what they were experiencing. So in some rare cases that are called entanglement, people like this have experiences of empathy that are so amplified that they can in some way feel what other people are feeling. That's that's really what empathy is. It's solidarity with someone else. When you're sad, I'm sad. When you hurt, I'm hurt. When you yawn, 
I can't help it. I yawn. When you tear up, I find myself tearing up. In fact, this is Paul, what Paul tries to get us to see and experience in Romans chapter 12 when he says, weep with those who weep. Celebrate with those who celebrate. Let your souls be entangled with others. And yet, what we see here in Hebrews chapter 4 is that this is what Jesus, our great high priest, experiences completely and continuously towards us. Now, we aren't a big fan of sympathy, are we? In fact, a lot of us don't want other people's sympathy. We don't want to be pitied. In fact, think about it. Empathetic. What's like the root word there? Pathetic. I don't want your empathy. It makes me feel pathetic. I don't want your sympathy. It makes me feel weak and pity. You can keep your sympathy to yourself. But the word here, sympathy, is a compound word in the original language. It means to suffer with. Suffer alongside. So it's not that Jesus just feels pity for you. What's being described here is that Jesus suffers alongside you. Because he is one with us, what you feel, he feels. And what it says here is that he sympathizes, he suffers alongside of us in our weakness. This great high priest is not impressed with your strength. He's not impressed with your skill. He's not impressed with your ability whether natural or even your spiritual ability. He's not sitting back like saying, wow. No, the heart of Jesus, if we're reading this right, the heart of Jesus is drawn toward your weakness. We tend to avoid weak people, don't we? We don't know what to do with weak. We're challenged to love the chronically sick. We're challenged in loving the chronically sad. We struggle to love vulnerable people. We don't know how to care for people that are hurting. We tend, because of all these reasons, we tend to avoid people that are experiencing profound weakness. We just don't know what to do with it. And here's the sad part. We particularly don't know what to do with it in our Christianity either. But Hebrews tells us that Jesus is drawn toward it. Our need stirs the depths of Jesus' love. So do you realize, do you realize that the very parts of your life that you try to hide, the wounds that you try to conceal, the weakness that you think is a liability to your Christian experience, are the very things about you that Jesus' heart is drawn toward. What you conceal, Jesus loves. What you pretend isn't there, Jesus is moving toward. We have lived by the myth that we highlight our strengths and we deny our weaknesses. But the question that we need to wrestle with today is why would we deny the very condition that stirs Jesus' compassion and stirs Jesus' care for us. To deny our weakness, to pretend like we have it all together, is to actually forfeit what's being offered here 
It's to forfeit, help in time of need. Listen to how the psalmist describes it in Psalm 34. The Lord is near to the strong. No. He's near to the successful. He's near to the Christian who clearly has it all together. He's near to the celebrated one. He's near to the famous one. He's near to the one that everyone marvels at their life. No, he is near to the broken hearted. And he saves the crushed in spirit. In other words, he is drawn towards the person who realizes that they have zero excuses left. The one that realizes that there is no point with pretending. An experience of his nearness requires honesty about our weakness. And I want to speak candidly to us, reality. We're not going to see revival in our church until we're humble and honest enough to admit our desperate need for Jesus. We will not experience revival in pretense. We will not experience revival in our independence. We've got this. We're successful. Look out how impressive we are. We won't experience the nearness of God like being described here when we're fronting. We'll just keep playing church until we're really ready. Until we're ready. So how do we respond? Verse 16, let us then, this is the writer of Hebrews' application, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So in light of verse 14 and 15, we are being told, and this isn't a suggestion, this is an imperative, we are being told that we must draw near to the throne of grace. Draw near. So this is beautiful because this great high priest not only goes where no man has gone before. But what this tells us is that the one who has gone where no man has gone before now turns to us. Now turns his attention to us here on earth and invites us to come with him as well. Through faith, we follow him. Through trusting in Christ, we pass beyond the veil into the holy place with Christ himself. Jesus didn't just say, deuces, I'm out, I'll see you soon. He says, come with me. Come with me. Remember that scene in the Gospels? I believe all three synoptic Gospels tell us about this, that when Jesus is breathing his last breaths on the cross, when he lets out his Spirit, Matthew would describe. It takes us from Golgotha outside of the city to the scene of in Jerusalem in the temple and we're told that the veil, the, the curtain, was torn from top to bottom. The divide between God and man was brought down. So you don't need a priest. And I hope you hear me clearly. You don't need a priest to help usher you there. You don't need a mediator for your prayers because we already have a great high priest in heaven and his name is Jesus.
There's two sides to the Christmas story. Remember them. Heaven draws near in Jesus, but also we draw near to heaven through this same Jesus. And not with timidity, not fearfully, not with fingers crossed, not with rope around our waist, just in case, but with confidence. How? Because as described here, this is a throne of grace, a place of undeserved kindness for an undeserving people like us. What qualifies us to respond to this passage? What qualifies us to draw near to the throne of grace? Here it is. Need. If you're needy, you're qualified. All you gotta do is be humble enough to recognize it. And it's here and only here in the presence of God and through the ministry of our high priest Jesus that we receive mercy to cover our sins and grace in our time of need. Where do you turn for sympathy? Like legitimately, where do you turn when you need someone to see you and to care about your circumstance and to offer you love? Think about all the places that we desperately turn to be seen and to be affirmed. Think about all the phone calls that you make and the texts that you send and the appointments that you set up and the social media posts that you draft in order for someone to see you. But the promise that we have here is that Jesus can be and Jesus should forever be your source of compassion. You have an infinite need for care and Jesus has an infinite capacity to give it to you. He sees you, he cares for you, and he welcomes you. Will you respond? Will you respond in faith? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...